This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. A few years ago, in a speech about automation, California Senator Jerry Brown advocated a system of maintaining a universal basic income that ensures shelter, food, education and health coverage for every citizen. His rationale was quite simple. The job losses coming down the track would be so profound and numerous that we had a choice of, as he put it, welfare for all, or warfare for all. The COVID-19 pandemic has, by general agreement, supercharged that. Countries all around the world are putting workers on furlough, effectively trialing universal basic income models for people who can't work. Manufacturers are investing in technologies that will altogether remove puny virus-susceptible humans from the chain. Companies are adapting their working models to see how little can be centralized and test the limits of the virtual office. To paraphrase the Wall Street Journal, the last time humans concentrated so hard on tablets, they had commandments on them. My guest today is Dr. Carl Benedict Frey from Oxford University, where he directs a program on the future of work at the Oxford Martin School. An economist by training, in 2013, Dr. Frey, along with Michael Osborne, co-authored The Future of Employment, How Susceptible Are Jobs to Computerization, a piece so influential it has become the basis of government models the world over and is referenced more than any other piece of work in this area. His latest book is The Technology Trap, explores the disruptive effect of technology, its political dimensions and issues of automation anxiety. Welcome, Dr. Frey. Good to be with you, Alex. So in that seminal, the future of employment study, you found that 47%, almost half of jobs in the US, were exposed to automation. But reading the full paper, it was quite clear to me that you were saying this is merely one of many decision drivers. Was the study widely misunderstood or at least quoted so selectively that it ended up misrepresented? So I think it's fair to say that the general perception of the paper was that automation is inevitably going to displace 47% of jobs. And as a consequence of that, we will see widespread technological um, unemployment. Now, not all coverage of our paper suggested that, and it must be said that many people who did bother to read the full paper uh, also properly understood what uh, it said. But as you pointed out, what we suggest in the paper is that the potential scope of automation, the potential set of jobs and tasks that are replaceable, 
is vast, uh, but mm. that is only one part of the question. So first of all, it doesn't suggest anything about the sort of equilibrium effects of automation. It doesn't try to answer the question whether more jobs will be replaced than will be created. Mm -hmm. And secondly, uh, even if the potential scope of automation is significant, there are a variety of factors that drive decisions to automate. Even if Google Translate becomes perfect tomorrow, that doesn't mean that (laughs) translation workers will be replaced overnight because for certain documents to be valid, you need to be a certified translator. And unless we certify Google Translate, it's not going to replace humans in all of those jobs. Issues surrounding the relative cost between capital and labor matter as well. So when Nissan produces cars, In Japan, it relies heavily on robots. When it does the same thing in India, it relies more on cheap labor. And as I point out in the technology trap, resistance to automation in history have often slowed the process down. And when uh, technologies are replacing, it means that it also creates losers. And those losers are likely to resist the introduction um, of new technologies. Now, one large, probably the largest category of jobs which are relatively easily automatable are so because they are repetitive and they require no high-level critical thinking. So they are basically very boring jobs, soul-destroying jobs. Shouldn't we celebrate nobody having to do those jobs anymore? Well, in one sense, I agree with you, and obviously this is something that was pointed out by Marx and Engels and, again, uh, debated in the 50s and 60s. So this dehumanizing uh, nature of repetitive work, the idea that, you know, placing a person in the repetitive motions of machinery was unnatural and uh, even uh, dehumanizing. And, And I think it's definitely fair to say that those were not the most creative, exciting jobs. But they did allow people without higher levels of education to support themselves and their families and and even allowed uh, blue-collar workers to become middle class. So I think it uh, is important to remember the societal function that these jobs have in creating sort of a feeling of unity uh, creating a middle class, which was the basis for middle class politics, mm-hmm. um, and kept society together. So while I agree with you that these are not necessarily the most exciting jobs, I do think historically they played uh, an important role. And I think that the disappearance of those jobs have clearly provided profound challenges, not just in terms of the polarization we see in the labor market, but also in terms of the political polarization we see, not just on on the national level, but also within countries where you see that manufacturing cities where jobs have disappeared, have seen um, increases in crime, deteriorating public services, increases in substance abuse, all sorts of bad social consequences. Mm. 
whereas skilled cities where new jobs are being created uh, are an entirely different universe. And because people live in very different realities, obviously that also creates very much a different sense about where we are and where we're going. And, and I think uh, the polarization of our societies is in large part a consequence of that process. No, no. Is there a danger that you know we basically replicate that effect? So you're talking about the sort of Rust Belt in America, for instance, where deindustrialized cities fall into a, a, a sort of cycle of of disrepair. We always talk about these things from a Western perspective, but looking at at it globally, is there a danger that? countries to which we have largely outsourced our cheap labor and which rely on that to develop would be hit even harder. So going back to what you were saying earlier, if if Japan has the option to create a fully automated factory to make cars there, as opposed to one that relies on cheap labor in India, why go to India? Yes, I think uh, you're absolutely right. So the polarization of the labor market that we see is not just a consequence of automation. It's also a consequence of offshoring, although I think uh, it's important to notice that offshoring is also a consequence of computerization. So before the striking advances in uh, information and communication, technology that we saw during the 1990s, it wasn't really feasible for large Western companies to coordinate production at distance and outsource uh, production to places. <laughs> That's interesting. So technology giveth and technology might taketh away. In, indeed, exactly. You <laughs> uh, point to a very important point, which is the fact that we've seen rising levels of inequality within Western economies should not be taken to suggest that we've seen the same phenomena globally. And so look at global inequality since the 1990s, uh, it's actually decreased uh, for uh, the first time, arguably in history. And that has been in large part because China has managed to industrialize so rapidly, in large part by uh, taking on production tasks that were previously done in the United States and Europe. But I think looking forward, the challenge of automation is arguably even greater for developing countries, because what automation does is that it reduces the demand for labor in manufacturing more broadly. So if look at peak manufacturing employment uh, over the course of the 20th century, what you see is that manufacturing employment peaked in countries like Germany and Britain around 35-40%. In China, Brazil and India, it's already peaked below 20%. Oh, I see. So it's, it's lower. I didn't know that. And if we look historically, all the countries that we know of that grown rich, have done so by shifting uh, workers from low-paid agriculture jobs to middle-income manufacturing jobs. And if those jobs gradually disappear across the board, well, countries that haven't yet industrialized may have to conceive 
entirely new growth models. Of skipping so, that step, as it were. Exactly. Mm. And that hasn't been done by any country yet. You can argue about whether India has done that to some extent, relying more on services than manufacturing. Mm. But I think, broadly speaking, we don't know of any country who's managed to escape the middle-income trap, as it's called, by specializing in anything other than uh, manufacturing goods. So that is a key challenge facing developing countries. And obviously, because they also have more limited resources, um, they don't necessarily have the social safety nets to um, actually help people um, adjust, which Western countries have. So and that, I believe, is a key challenge. Moving on to today's circumstances, the general wisdom is that the COVID-19 pandemic has acted as an accelerator of this trajectory. Is that true? I think it's a bit early to say. So when it comes to automation, there is some evidence to, to suggest that plug-and-play automation has accelerated. So essentially, we've seen hotels adopting robots to transport sort of food and drinks mm. to hotel rooms. We see the same thing in hospitals to transport medicine and food to patients. Those robots have not necessarily replaced any workers. Uh, it must be said they've been sort of helpful devices in maintaining social distancing measures uh, and still remaining um, and uh, open and operating. But I do think that more broadly, if we look at patents, there will have been some upsurge in automation technology patenting. We at least see that in the data when it comes to remote work technologies, which have nearly doubled in terms of the percentage percentage of total apl uh, patent applications, which is up from 0.5 to around 1%. What I think is less clear is whether we see more ambitious automation projects. I think anything which involves, you know, bringing in new expertise, trying to get uh, new software systems to interact with old systems. Anything that's been more complicated essentially being a no-go uh, during the pandemic. So Because it needs human input, as it were. Exactly. And it needs, to some extent, innovation. And what you don't get much of during a time where most people are sitting in front of their computer screens at home is creative, creativity and innovation. You mm. may get an uptake of existing technologies, and I think there's some evidence to suggest that. And you may see that people work more productively, take fewer breaks, don't waste time commuting, uh, and so on. So uh, I think that there is some evidence of sort of there being a sort of short-term effect of automation on working patterns. I think the long-term effect is more unclear, simply because we haven't had the type of innovation more broadly that I think is needed for artificial intelligence, for example, to become a more mature technology. That said, though, if we look at historical patterns and if we look, um, for example, at the experience of the Great Recession, 
What we do see during the Great Recession is that these routine rule-based jobs that can easily be automated disappear quite rapidly during the recession, and they never come back. So there seems to be a pattern where businesses, rather than rehiring people, decide to automate. And we also see that increasingly cash-strapped consumers tend to opt for more cheaper goods and services, which are typically produced with more automation technology. Mm. So if people start to buy their food, for example, at McDonald's, uh, rather than going to restaurants, and McDonald's uses more uh, automation in production, then you increase the level of automation in the economy. Um, and I, I must say at this stage, stage it's unclear that we will see a repeat of those patterns again after this uh, economic downturn, but there are some reasons to believe uh, that we will. Humans are vulnerable to viruses, obviously, but then again, so are automated systems. It's just a different kind of virus. Could we experience the computer virus equivalent of COVID-19 at some point in the future that will make us rethink that true resilience means a system that can function either way, that can function either automated, computerized rather, or manually or mixed? Well, I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but I think all educations that we've been seeing over the past couple of months with um, these cyber attacks, there is a clear concern for what you are describing. So indeed, uh, as we become more interconnected through cyberspace, we become vulnerable in different ways. But I mean, the lesson from that is not that we should digitize less, but that we need to do so in a more secure way. Secure way, yeah. Uh, the trade union community and the Fabian Society published some research warning that there was a catastrophic double whammy, as they call it, uh, coming for low-wage workers in sectors like retail and hospitality because of automation and because of COVID-19. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think that's a fair um, assessment. So clearly, uh, much of the job growth that we've been seeing over the past three decades have been in this in-person type of services. And those jobs are now being hit both by automation and the pandemic. So first of all, I think it's important to remember when we look at patterns of remote work that most jobs that can be done remotely are rel relatively skilled jobs. So our estimates suggest that roughly 80% of jobs in financial services can be done remotely in a crisis. If you look at leisure and, has, uh, leisure and hospitality, it's less than 20%. Mm. Uh, those jobs are clearly much more vulnerable. And they're also more vulnerable to people uh, staying at home in high-income occupations. So if you think about a company like Pret, who's been cutting, I think, around 3,000 jobs in the United Kingdom, they are basically suffering because people are no longer commuting to work and not getting their coffee and their lunch uh, at Pret whilst commuting. And in addition to that, I think there uh, are good reasons to believe that a lot of people are going to change some of their behaviors after this pandemic, and at least that is what survey uh, data shows. And 
some will probably be more keen on interacting with a sort of vending machine rather than a human waiter mm. or interacting with a robot rather than a human barista. So I think there is this double whammy coming for these low-skilled jobs. I should say that I think that this is something that would have happened anyhow, but much more gradually, and the pandemic has really supercharged uh, this this shift. Carl Benedict, thank you so much for your time and for your clarity. And listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us. For my part, I want to finish today's brilliant conversation simply by adding a little bit of perspective. Nearly a billion people in the world do not have easy access to electricity. 11% of the world population do not have access to clean water. A quarter of all homes do not contain a fridge. More than 40% of the world population are not internet users. So while we try to adapt to this automation revolution happening here, there are pockets still trying to catch up to 100-year-old technological advances which we take for granted. And maybe there is an answer there. Maybe the most human thing, if someone is struggling to catch up, is to stop and ask, are you all right? Do you need help? Is it not possible to put automation in the explicit service of improving lives, of reversing ecological damage, of resource exploration, of eradicating inequality, rather than only boosting the bottom line? This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandreou. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.